Hello and welcome to the second reel of episode 6 of the Double Reel Film Podcast. No doubt you are fully refueled, rested and ready for another white-knuckle thrill ride of nerdy film chat. Now, if you haven't already listened to the first reel, stop now, go and download it, so you don't miss any of the great podcast content that it contains, such as the regular roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, some pithy comments from listeners in the podcast magazine letters page, a look at the classic German submarine epic Das Boot that I finally got round to seeing, and the first part of this month's special guest conversation with James Adamson. Coming up in this, the second reel of the podcast, the exciting conclusion to the Adamson's dissecting the dispute between Scorsese and Marvel, then the hidden gem feature in which I explain why you should have watched Stir of Echoes instead of the similar but overhyped Sixth Sense, then the one that got away where I examine why Guillermo del Toro has yet to make his long-standing passion project at the Mountains of Madness, and finally the remake Hate Watch, covering the wild and crazy Nick Cage version of The Wicker Man. Now let's get back to the film chat with James Adamson. I don't understand this kind of elitist attitude of like, oh well, these films are popular. Like, yeah, they're popular because they're fun. Like, you know, you know how much you know effort you have to you know put your like, you know how, what mindset you have to be in to watch a David Fincher film. I can't watch a David Fincher film every every week or every month, but I could happily stick on a Marvel or a Star Wars or you know, does Indiana Jones count as like a franchise film? I don't know, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to watch Gone Girl regularly. Those films are brutal, but you know, I still appreciate that David Fincher's made some excellent films. I can't watch Zodiac. You know, all the time, but I still think you know it's not it's not a franchise film. But I still watch it. It's you know, I mean, I think it's I think it's the type of film that they're making. You know, I don't I don't want to watch you know these types of films all the time. That does that is that bad? Like I don't want to watch seven all the time. You know, certain films you just you don't want to watch all the yeah. time. Whereas you know you can sit down with you know you know the wife or you know your missus and you can you just chuck on a Marvel film. But do you want to tell do you want to tell you oh you do you want to watch the Irishman? It's three and a half hours long. And it's about Jimmy Hoffa fuck off like yeah yeah i'll watch it once i'm not watching it again and again and again and i'm sorry but that's just that's just the human mindset i think it's just a case of how you appeal to your audience and frankly you're more likely to go and see a film about spider-man because it's you're more likely to everyone is going to enjoy it you know how, how can you expect people to go everyone to go and enjoy grand budapest hotel no it's just a case of the, the type of film you're making isn't as popular and that's just how times change i don't know you can't be bitter about it because frankly you can't really be you can't really be annoyed at that. It's a film that it's a type of film that isn't as popular as Star Wars. Did anyone moan about Star Wars, you know, back in you know the eighties for people going to watch it, even though it definitely would have made the most money out of any film that year? I guarantee you Empire Strikes Back made a heap more money than um Raging Bull did. But that's because Raging Bull isn't as accessible as a film as Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. So let, let me let me try and get to where I think um Scorsese is coming from, or the underneath the things where I think Scorsese has got wrong, a genuine issue that he's raised and what we might, what, what that might mean. Because where, where I think um, it, he does have a point is independent films are finding it harder. These things are getting edged out. And I think while everything you say is correct about, of course, there's always been a mainstream and there's always been mainstream films that people watch more. There's always been mainstream films that people will watch over and over again. I mean, I talk all the time about saying, I'm going to go and watch The Terminator again. Um, and, and there's a film on my shelf that I should probably watch instead. And, and there, there's a reason for that. There's a reason I've watched Terminator loads of times is because it's a terrific film that, that, that you can enjoy in that way. But I think it's, it's one of those things where you say, that's absolutely right, so long as those less accessible films, so long as those more independent films, so long as those kind of harder films still have a chance to get made at all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And there's an element of, this zero-sum game that corporate 
especially corporate America plays, where they just want to wipe everything out but their product. I think if you know that's the bit that you know the art, the anger should be aimed at. That's the bit that, that the argument should be aimed at because Disney could support, um, you know, these big studios could support those those films more. They could say, you know what, and they they used to do it a lot more. They always used to have like a studio that does more independent stuff, and they would say, yeah, here's some money, you know, here's. Uh, uh, because they know the prestige and the awards that come with that, they'll say, yeah, I know, we made a big mainstream film that made a lot of money, but this prestige director deserves a chance as well. And they, they like to bask in the reflected glory of having supported great artistic directors as well and great writers as well. So they'd send a bit of money that way. And I think his concern that that is being lost is, uh, I think, is worth mentioning. Richard Dreyfus said something quite interesting about making films these days. He said he was working on a film recently and they they were hoping to get some extra shots of the sky or, you know, some additional time spent filming certain sky and stars shots on a relatively low budget film. And it seemed quite a reasonable thing to ask for. And they basically said, sorry, we just don't have the money for that. He says, well, you don't have the money for that. I said, mate, we've got no money. Have you seen what, you know, have you seen the catering on this film? You know, we've got no money. And, and he said that there seems to be this massive gap now. You can either make a massive film for $200 million or, you can basically make a film for you know absolutely fuck all on on small cameras and 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 hope for the best and hope to get picked up at festivals and i think that that gap between big and small is the problem so i think scorsese's got it wrong pointing at marvel because in my view you could fix all of those problems yeah and you would still have a mainstream and looking back over my film you know film viewing life there's considerably worse things that have been the mainstream than marvel i think marvel's absolutely fine if that's the mainstream and there's other films being made as well in, in good numbers, I've got no problem with it being Marvel. They're good films. I go and see most of them at cinema. Um, so I don't think Marvel is the problem, but I do think, and I keep going back to this, those pricks in the boardroom, they yeah, are... Yeah, and you know, I think it's it's such a multi-layered issue that it's not just, you know, Marvel making films they want to make. Like, well, what, Marvel, Marvel are a company that are making films about their comics. There's nothing wrong with that. They're going to be more crowd-pleasing than, you know, more niche topics like Jimmy Hoffa, for example. But to be fair to, be fair to Marvel, there's plenty of things they've done in their comics where it would have been a lot easier to just be kind of straightforward, you know, much more mainstream, much more standard than they are. I mean, think about when they did Black Panther in like, whether it was the late 60s or early 70s, how provocative was that to call a superhero Black Panther yeah. in America in the late 60s, yeah. early 70s? It's, I think they, they've not, they're, they're, not, they're not the problem when it comes to you know, interesting, nuanced characters, the idea that being a superhero could be like, make you an outcast in the world, things like the X-Men and even X-Men 3, which is like one of the worst X-Men films, the idea that there'd be people out there trying to cure them. That's quite an interesting yeah, idea. Why should you be cured of being who you are? That actually has resonance in society. So if you're going to have mainstream films, and I think you are going to, and I have no problem with there being loads of mainstream films, better them than some of the, some of the shit that came out in the 90s, man. Don't blame Marvel, you know? It's they, they're probably the far more acceptable face of mainstream films that we've seen. Well, in the yeah, years. I mean, the mainstream films aren't always, you know, the pinnacle of filmmaking or the pinnacle of a cinema experience because the the latest Star Wars films were fucking shit. They were crap, and they're that's a massive franchise. That's when I think of franchise, I think of Star Wars as the ultimate franchise. They've made so much money, but I can still hate their films. And in fact, only I'd say three out of the Skywalker sagas, to speak are actually any good. The other six are shit. 
you can still you can still hate a franchise from it, but it's your people are allowed to have their interest in the mainstream media. I think it's not even a pro, it's not it's not even a problem with Marvel themselves. I think it's you know people in the boardroom trying to make money. That's what that's what the film business is now. How do we make money and how do we keep making money? Because they can't just churn out a shit film like Michael Bay did with the Transformers. Although miraculously he made a lot of money, they have to make the story interesting, and that's what Marvel films are. They they are interesting yeah. stories and they make money, and therefore people keep coming back for more. The Fast and Furious again is another anomaly because all of those films are shit. That I don't care who you are. The Fast and Furious films are shit. And people still go and see them because there's cars and there's Vin Diesel just going family. People like that for some reason. It's probably just the kind of aspect of cars and shooty shooty bang bang. People still go and see it, but Marvel actually, I personally think, try and make films that are you know more interesting to watch. I think originally, you know, Iron Man one, Iron Man two was literally you know like how do we how do we use all the CGI budget and make a you know average film, whereas the latest films, you know, you've got Thor Ragnarok was hilarious. Infinity War and Endgame, you know, the part one, part two, I thought they were, they were good films. They didn't, they didn't really touch on, like, touchy issues, but it was just, it was a good watch. I think it's down to viewership, or what people, not maybe not viewership, but what the viewers want to see. And unfortunately, the market for indie films is just slowly fading away. And sometimes that's just what happens. And in fact, although we've slagged them off for saying that you can't, you can't be sliding off um, people like Marvel for you know not making cinema when Netflix literally isn't cinema because you watch it on your telly. Netflix is great for giving those opportunities to small directors. You know, there's so many films I've watched just recently that I would consider to be kind of more niche and in the line of the type of film Scorsese wants to see. Thanks to Netflix, The Five Bloods by Spike Lee, The Two Popes, which I know was a Netflix original, but you know, a film about the two popes isn't, you know, isn't a film yeah. about, you know, isn't like, you know, a franchise massive film. That would be, I consider, that, although it's made by Netflix, Netflix are that kind of weird bridging gap between indie and the mainstream. That's the way I see it. They're they're a massive company with a lot. Yeah, of- I, I know what you mean, mate. I know what you mean. I think I think there is an opportunity for for um for indie films. And I think when you when you think about independent films, a lot of independent films are not always seen on the big screen. You know, they're shown at festivals and they're a good calling card. And the first Born Identity was film was directed by a guy called Doug Lyman, who made his name with a number of independent films. And not all of those independent films are very well known, but the fact that he made his name making them, and those films got shown at festivals, gave him the opportunity to to take part in a series of films that ended up being yeah. really good. And part of the reason they were really good is because an independent director with a new look and, and feel and, and, and style uh, cracked cracked the mainstream. So there is definitely a place for independent films. Like you say, times change. I think there is a way that you can make cinema better because while, and, and you would still have Marvel because Marvel's not the problem. I think there's a, there's a way to maybe look at this and how it could be better. Um, uh, you know, and I think Netflix is... Netflix is really interesting because I think they're a big part of the solution, but that th- they can be a little bit of a part of the problem as well. Um, and I think it's interesting. It's like, I think, especially given what's going on in the world right now, cinema is a little bit of a crossroads. Maybe this is an opportunity for them to kind of go into a huddle and say, well, is there a way to find a better balance for stuff like this? And say, here's the mainstream and that's great. And here's like alternative films and that's yeah, great. I think this is the, the situation um, right now is a great moment for them to do a little control alt delete you know reboot kind of thing yeah um yeah i think netflix is the best opportunity for these films i just you don't want to go and like what i'm trying to think of different indie films i've seen i would i saw seven psychopaths the martin mcdonough which i thought was shit but 
um, loads of people loved it. But I had to see that. I went to see it in uh, the the local independent theatre in Aberdeen, the Belmont, because I'm going to give them a little shout out because mm. uh, they'll, they'll definitely be struggling right now. You don't need to see an independent film on a screen that big. You know, there's an, there's there's nothing mm. like the reason we go to IMAX to watch films like Interstellar and Tenet. And you know the new Avengers because they are spectacles, and it is nice to see them on a big screen. But you know, it's actually sometimes it's quite nice to just stick on, you know, a kind of like hidden gem of a film like *The Five Bloods*. And think, you know what? I didn't need to see that on the big screen, but I really enjoyed just sitting on my couch and you know finding a film. That I was like, oh, I was really surprised at how good that was. As much as I feel bad for independent cinema, it's it's just one of those things. It's this sounds bad, but it's one of those things where people go to the cinema to watch a spectacle. They go to be thrilled. You know, you've got cinemas with like 4dx where it's like these seats that move and you get sprayed with water and you know you actually get punched in the face by captain america you know it's one of those things where what you're talking about i get where you're coming from but if i could if i could offer an analogy i think this concept is like the difference between going to see the biggest band in the world in, in a massive stadium you know and you know it's one of the great frontmen, whether it's freddie mercury or mick jagger or you know or, you know depending on who you like beyonce or anyone else who knows how to work a massive crowd and having 60,000 people in the palm of the singer's hand in that massive spectacle is is one way of, of watching something. There's another kind of live experience where you might go and see a smaller band in a much smaller yeah. venue. And it would be weird watching the big band in the small venue, and it would be pretty weird watching the small band die on their ass trying to play Wembley yeah. Stadium, right? So I still I think there's an element of independent cinema that doesn't have to be an IMAX, but it would be a shame if the only way to watch those films was yeah. at home. Well, I'm not saying that's like the only I mean, right now, the only way we can watch those films at, is at home. But if the yeah right now that's yeah that's why some of these independent cinemas have got slightly smaller screens and a more intimate feel and they've got a bar outside and that's cool. There's a place called the Curzon in Russell Square in London which does yeah. all of that, and the screens are actually smaller and, and and the rooms are smaller, but you still get that communal. But what I'm saying is, is that maybe like you say, like your way to get into the industry back in the day was you make a B movie with a pair of tits and a car chase, and that's you. You you if you make a decent one, you might get into you know making a two hundred million dollar film. I think Netflix is maybe what well, that's possibly a solution where an up and coming director wants to direct a really niche film about you know a guy living in a council estate trying to make his way in the world, and that's the that's the topic of the film. That's obviously you know not a big franchise blockbuster, and that's an independent film. And the only way for that film to be seen is being put on Netflix or Prime Video or maybe Sky Go or whatever you know that that kind of niche area, and then. Um, that director gets a little bit of recognition and then they make more films and then the, you know, they get seen and they get making films and then those films are shown in cinema screens. But right now the, there's not as much demand to go and see. I'm sorry, it's, it's not Marvel's fault that people just, it's not, I mean, none, none of this, none of this in my opinion is Marvel's fault. I think that there is a, there is a discussion to be had about whether Netflix could support the live cinema experience a bit more, you know, the, the, you know, showing their films a bit more. But I don't, that's, that, that isn't Scorsese's point. Scorsese's point is Marvel should, uh, Marvel's going to make a film that makes $2 billion. They should donate a certain amount of money from their box office revenue to helping smaller filmmakers. That's not his point. He just sounds bitter. If that was his point, I'd be like, yeah, 100% agree, but that's not. He's just kind of like, oh, there's... Few, there's... Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think how I'd sum it up is I think um, there is a problem there, but I think Scorsese's reaction was the wrong reaction to the problem. Yeah. And I don't even... Uh, the weird thing is I think he's just said it on a whim, and the fact that in his clarification he's not really kind of tried to say... He's not even tried to not apologise for it, but you know what I mean? Uh, look, I, think he, I think he's got to the point where he doesn't give a fuck, and he said what he said, and he's pissed off with it, and there you go. Yeah, I... 
I would agree. I think it's a, it's a case of what people want to see. It's just a case of people have different tastes now. Like back in the day, Hitchcock was the biggest thing. Hitchcock, although you can't say Hitchcock's films are like Marvel films, Hitchcock was the Marvel or the Star Wars back in his day. Everyone wanted to see those films. And then, you know, it moves on and everyone wanted to see the Spielberg and everyone wanted to see, you know, the film Spielberg. And then you get ones like Tarantino. You're absolutely right. There's always there's always the film that's got all the world's sort of got the wind behind it and everyone's way behind it. And then there's films well, that haven't. And and down the years you might you'll you'll come back and go, Yeah, there were films that were overlooked from that era. That's the way it goes. And I think all all I'm all I'm thinking is I, I don't think we should be tearing the whole thing up so that you don't have great mainstream films anymore because cinema dies if there isn't something that the masses want to see. But I think it would be a shame if those other films didn't get made and seen as well. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, like, did any, did you know, when Hitchcock was the biggest thing, who was another director making films that weren't as popular? Say Akira Kurosawa, I think that could be a good example. His films were shown at, you know, the you know the Venice, Venice Film Festival. Didn't, it didn't um, Rashomon win... Rashomon won yeah. at the yeah absolutely and, and there's always an element of the best films being made in a foreign language found it a lot harder back then there were there would have been smaller independent directors there was you know Ida Lupino was a female director who deserved more time and didn't get it um I think Douglas Sirk made certain films you know he was he was popular with certain audiences but never as big as Hitchcock there's always people that are never as big as the big yeah, and that's the, that's the thing I think they just it goes in cycles I'm sure there were heaps of smaller films made in the 50s and 60s when Hitchcock was at the peak of his powers and people were probably a little bit better. It's like, oh, why are people going to see these Hitchcock films when I've made a film that I think is good to, to watch as well? Is it because people like going to see the Hitchcock? They like the thrill of something that was new. Marvel is still relatively new. I know, the, what was the first Marvel film? Spider-Man 1 with Tobey Maguire back. The, the superhero fights the big bad. So I imagine it's just, a, you know, it just it, it just goes it goes in cycles, unfortunately. It just, it does. And, you know, in the in the nineties, you know, from the seventies to the nineties, it was everyone wanted to see the next Spielberg, and now it's everyone wants to see the next Nolan film. It just goes there, and I bet people look at Christopher Nolan like he's just thrown two hundred million at Tenet, which people I didn't think Tenet was was that great, um, but I imagine there's heaps of people that's like, well, yeah, yeah, there are there are people who don't, but they they think that Christopher Nolan leaves them cold, and they they don't understand why lots of people okay. want to see them. Like you say, these things go in cycles, right? And if there's another cycle in 20, 30 years' time and we look back at this era of Marvel and we're somewhere else, but with a thriving film industry, then great. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes people are just a bit unnerved at the moment that it feels like, you know, are we still going to have cinema in five years? Do you know what I mean? And hopefully hopefully that's only a temporary feeling. Yeah, I mean, it it does sound like Scorsese is just being a bit bitter. And I'm not going to apologise for losing my temper because Hugo was shit. So I think what we've got to in this is that, you know, cinema changes a lot you know, keeps changing over the years, times are changing, and there are some things about the way things are changing at the moment that are a bit of a concern. There are also some things about the way cinema is changing which open up new and interesting opportunities. Um, I think I, I think Scorsese, for me, Scorsese's frustration was real, but I think he directed it at, at the wrong target and in the wrong way. I think what it's highlighted is there is a bit of concern about a, a total dominance of the mainstream Um but that Marvel is not the worst aspect of that. Marvel is actually perhaps one of the better things that we've had as mainstream films in, in, in many years. Um, I think perhaps in future, if we could see more of these Netflix-type films or these more interesting-type films still available in cinemas, and if we could find some way to support cinemas so they get through this difficult time, I think that would be a lot better. Um, but but I think, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's probably right. There will always be a mainstream and there will always be like less less seen films. And... 
that's fine. Those less films find their own currency of prestige and loyal followers. We, uh, all I will say is I hope that continues, even if the way it continues is perhaps different to the way it used to be. Well, well, I mean, what, how do you feel about the conversation? I think I it, 100% agree with everything you've said um, in terms of hoping that the cinema industry continues, maybe just not in the way we expect it to. Um, although I think I, I can understand to some extent Oscar says he's better. I think he's just got to kind of move with the times the same way cinema has to move with the times. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's, yeah. it's all about adapting. And I, th- I feel like oh, certainly everything going right now with, you know, this world, with uh, the cine world news and things like that, it's, you know, it's obviously going to have to adapt and hopefully cinema's still there at the end of it. Yeah. Well, that, that's all I think we've got time for this, uh, this month on The Big Conversation. I think the, uh, I think the Adamsons have solved another problem for you. Uh, next time we'll tackle the Middle East. Ah, uh, 45 minutes, that one. Right you are. And now for the hidden gem feature, in which I draw your attention to a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. These are underrated classics, less seen and celebrated than they should be, and by sharing them with the double real audience, I hope you'll be inspired to watch them yourselves. I also like to imagine what might have been if they had enjoyed the success they deserve at the time, and what difference that would have made to the careers of those making the film. This month's entry is slightly different to the others on the list that I've done previously, in that I'm not just talking about a single film and why it, by itself, didn't enjoy the success it deserved. This is a case of a film that seems to have missed out on box office success, because of another similar film that came out around the same time, and which hogged all the limelight, leaving only table scraps for our hidden gem. Looking back, I would argue that the wrong film got all the box office uh, success and plaudits, or at least a bigger share of it than it deserved. All will become clear as I explore this month's hidden gem, 1999's Stir of Echoes. Stir of Echoes came out in America in September of 1999, starring Kevin Bacon, and it was a supernatural thriller slash ghost story based on a novel from the 1950s by Richard Matheson. That may not be a familiar name, but he's one of the best-kept secrets among suspense and horror writers of that era. His stories were a mainstay of the original run of The Twilight Zone, with quite a few episodes based on his stories and many more written by him directly for the series. He also wrote scripts for various other TV shows, including The Outer Limits, Star Trek and the Alfred Hitchcock TV shows. Several of his stories became films, such as I Am Legend, which has been filmed several times, including versions with Charlton Heston and Will Smith, and Steven Spielberg's debut feature, Duel, about a motorist inexplicably terrorised by an anonymous truck driver. Matheson's a big influence on more famous writers like Stephen King. Stir of Echoes, his novel, is about someone who has the ability to see and communicate with the dead, whose spirits seem to be tormenting and pursuing him. He gradually realises that some great wrongs have been committed that his unique ability can put right, and he has to face his fears and these terrifying spirits to find the truth and unmask the real monsters, the still-living humans and their terrible secrets. Hang on, I hear you say. Supernatural thriller. Came out in 1999. Ability to communicate with dead people. That sounds familiar. And yes, the big film of that year, with a very similar presence, was M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. By pure coincidence, two separate productions were working on a very similar idea, and likely had little or no idea that the other film was even being made. M. Night Shyamalan pitched a spec script to the studios in 1997, which he promoted as his own original idea. The writer-director of Stir of Echoes, David Kep, had been working for years to bring an adaptation of the source novel to the screen. There's little or no suggestion that either film was made to compete with the other or to cash in on a trend for ghost stories at the time. It's just pure chance. 
This happens from time to time where two films with very similar ideas come out at the same time. Notable examples being when Deep Impact and Armageddon came out in the same year, when two volcano eruption films came out in 1997 and were both crap, or when both Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat were adapted from their original video game format into films within a year of each other. In this case, one film has completely overshadowed the other to the extent that few people have even heard of Stir of Echoes, whereas The Sixth Sense and its catchphrase, I See Dead People, made a huge impact on popular culture. So let's have a look at what happened. Richard Matheson published his novel in 1958 at a time when he was building a writing career which didn't put him at the top of the international bestseller lists, but it did earn him a good living and solid reputation as a writer. Like his other work at the time, it sold well and got good reviews and helped him break into film and television. Several of his works were adapted for the screen over the years, and he was known and respected throughout the industry. His work lent itself to being filmed, and he had a knack of creating a suspenseful what-if scenario out of situations ordinary people could easily imagine happening to them. Duel, for example, took a real-life experience Matheson had when he was driving on a quiet road at night, and a truck was driving right up behind him with headlights on full beam, too close for comfort. It was basically just an inconsiderate driver, but because of the size of the vehicle, being all alone on a dark road at night with the headlights blinding him in his rearview mirror, it was quite an intimidating experience. From there, he created a story imagining what would happen if you were in your car, and a massive truck started doing all that because its driver wanted to kill you. This is the kind of clever imagination from the writer of Stir of Echoes. David Cope was principally known as a screenwriter, having been responsible for big films like Jurassic Park, Colito's Way, and the first Mission Impossible film. He had ambitions to direct as well, initially with a film called The Trigger Effect, which was basically a B-movie based on an old Twilight Zone idea and didn't make much of an impact. Stir of Echoes was his next foray into directing. He was a long-time fan of Richard Matheson and felt that Stir of Echoes would be ideal material for a horror film which he wanted to direct. It's set in a working-class neighbourhood in Chicago. The main character is Tom, played by Kevin Bacon, a telecoms engineer, which was a much simpler kind of job back then, kids. He was basically just climbing up telephone poles and fixing wires. He's married with a son, another child on the way, and is just getting to that point in life where he realises his ambitions for a great and extraordinary life may need to be scaled down to something more run-of-the-mill. Early on in the story, there are hints that his son is talking to someone no one else can see, maybe an invisible friend, or maybe some sort of ghost or spirit. Tom undergoes hypnosis at a party for a bet, and he has a severe reaction to it, and starts to see strange visions, including a strange girl suddenly appearing in the room next to him. He's disoriented and frightened, but as the visions continue to happen, he realises that the person he is seeing, and which his son is seeing, is a vision of a girl from the neighbourhood who had disappeared some months before. Like all ghosts in these stories, she has unfinished business, and drives Tom to find out what happened to her, and the secrets people in their community are hiding. It's very effectively done, placing the story in a recognisable setting with plausible characters, which makes the supernatural story all the more believable. It builds a nice atmosphere with some effective scares and chills, although not a purely horror atmosphere. There are chases and other scenes which have more of a thriller or action film style in terms of rhythm and musical cues. It's not really groundbreaking, but it does a great job of putting the audience in the film, experiencing the fear those characters would feel and the strain on normal life it would cause. Kevin Bacon, possibly the most reliable actor in Hollywood, is rock solid as the main character, and the rest of the cast makes a virtue of the fact that they aren't star names, because that makes you believe they are the local cop, neighbour, or sister-in-law characters, rather than recognising famous faces. Director Kirk does a really good job balancing the realistic neighbourhood and characters with an effectively mounted horror and ghost sequence and the atmosphere around that. Unfortunately, it struggled to compete with the juggernaut that was The Sixth Sense, which came out very shortly before it. 
The similarities in the film are so strong that audiences must have decided that if you see one of them, you don't need to see the other. Both feature characters with the ability to see and communicate with the dead. Both centre on people and families struggling with death and grief. They even have the same composer providing the scores on the films, James Newton Howard, and surely he must have noticed something when he had both scripts on his doormat. But M. Night Shyamalan's film had greater star power with Bruce Willis. It centred the supernatural shocks around a cute kid, which is always an easier sell in a film like this, and obviously has the big twist ending that had everyone talking, or perhaps not talking about. And of course, The Sixth Sense came out first, mere weeks ahead, and caught the wave of critical commercial success that Stir of Echoes missed out on. While Our Hidden Gem did a modest $21 million at the box office against a $12 million budget, The Sixth Sense went on to make $300 million at the US box office and a similar even bigger amount around the rest of the world. It picked up a bundle of Oscar nominations that year and launched M. Night Shyamalan on a career of gimmicky twist endings and diminishing returns. It's a shame that one of these films was so overlooked. The cast of Stir of Echoes didn't get any star-making attention, so they mostly carried on afterwards with their productive but low-key acting careers. Kevin Bacon just carried on as before, to be fair. Uh, but David Kep's directing career didn't really take off, which it might have done if this film had got the success it deserved. He's still a pretty big-name writer with major credits to his name, but he hasn't directed much of note since, although I would draw your attention to a cracking little action film he did in 2012 called Premium Rush. By contrast, Sixth Sense propelled several of its actors to stardom. Bruce Willis was already doing alright, of course, but Tony Collette really established herself in Hollywood, Haley Joel Osment became the next Macaulay Culkin, and even Olivia Williams and Donnie Wahlberg did nicely out of their supporting turns in the film. I don't begrudge any of them their success, I just wish some more success and attention had gone the way of Stir of Echoes, which I think is the better film. Its central performances are stronger, you believe more in the grounded world in which the story is happening, and it's not so sappy and sentimental. And the story actually requires more conflict and drama to be resolved, whereas the storyline of Sixth Sense is pretty perfunctory. There used to be a website called Movie in a Minute, which sarcastically summarised films to their most basic details, and they nailed it with their summary of The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. Try helping them. It works. The end. And I'm not saying I wish The Sixth Sense had flopped or never existed, but surely it wouldn't have done any harm if more of that box office had gone the way of their rival film. Would they have noticed if they'd only made 574 million around the world instead of 674 million, and Stir of Echoes had made more of a splash to become a $100 million movie? I may of course be in the minority in preferring Stir of Echoes or in saying it deserves to be seen as much of the sixth sense. I'm apparently the only person who likes The Illusionist better than The Prestige, for example. But I urge you to watch this and judge for yourself. I think you may find that without needing to rely on now overused M. Night tropes and gimmicky plot twists, it does a better job of telling this kind of story and has aged better. So please seek it out and do your bit to rebalance the justice in the film universe. The next feature is The One That Got Away. This is where I delve into the deep, dark depths of film history at uh, film projects that were ambitious and passion projects that didn't quite make it to the screen despite the best efforts of the filmmakers involved. Usually when I do this feature it involves films that were a great passion or desire to be made by a filmmaker that were trying something that was almost impossible to do and in the end it never got made. This is very similar to that but it's possible that the story of this isn't over because the filmmaker involved is still around and has still got some ambitions towards this project. Episode 6 is one that got away is Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. 
Now, At the Mountains of Madness started life as a story by H.P. Lovecraft. He was a pioneer of fantastical horror writing. Born in 1890, dying in 1937 of, of cancer, age 46, he was hugely influential, though not very successful during his lifetime, writing for pulp magazines between the First and Second World War, uh, stories that started to become popular. He, uh, as well as being known for writing a certain kind of uh, gory horror story that no one had seen before, he was also known for having a great deal of correspondence with other writers, for example, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, although they never met. They were the two preeminent names of weird and fantasy fiction that people have still heard of, and they're synonymous today with a kind of pulp fiction uh, from those magazines full of wild, garish characters and stories. There the similarities end, though, because unlike Howard, Lovecraft's writing had more underlying themes in them regarding the, the horror and philosophy of what he was trying to say, uh, and underneath the clunky writing and pulp uh, audience he was writing for, the works dealt with monsters and indescribable horrors and powers in worlds just a heartbeat away from our own. The idea of humans finding out suddenly into their horror that they're not the centre of life in the universe and that there are hostile beings and worlds out there that would make us feel tiny and helpless. He set his stories in Lovecraft country because he was born and spent most of his life in that part of America known as New England and that's where he set most of his stories. Um, he used the place names and the towns around him to create a kind of fictional universe for his books. Similar to Stephen King with Maine, he grounded these fantastical stories in a version of places people would recognise and believe in. Fun fact, he created the fictional place named Arkham as a location for some of his stories, and DC Comics borrowed that name for Arkham Asylum in the Batman stories as a tribute to Lovecraft. He's unfairly pigeonholed sometimes as another low-grade writer of cheap horror stories that you'll have seen in B-movies. And it's easy to dismiss his writing as just scary stories in Pulp Fiction magazines about irresponsible scientists meddling in things they don't understand and stumbling across gloopy monsters from another realm. But his stories are more complex and nuanced than that. He was actually fascinated by science and scientific theories, not hostile to scientists at all. And the ideas for his stories revolved around the things we don't know or understand yet um, coming, up, coming back to bite us uh, in an indifferent universe that would see humans the way we see plant life or insects, something to use or dispose of to suit their own ends, with no thought for the value of our lives and civilization. Um, his idea was, imagine finding out the universe is teeming with life, but that life is huge, terrifying, and likely to kill you. Not out of malice necessarily, but just because you got under their feet, or whatever scary tentacles they have that pass for feet. He's been hugely influential, uh, name-checked by most writers and filmmakers of horror and supernatural fiction that followed his time as a writer. There's an enduring passion for his work among fans around the world, and the unique universe he created. Many of the adaptations of the work that have made it to the screen have been low-budget horror that forget those themes of that uh, indifferent universe and just focus on gory special effects, most famously the 80s horror comedy Reanimator. should also mention in passing that uh, there's a lot of correspondence out there which displays some very problematic racist views of H.P. Lovecraft, but his fans have been able to separate the personal views from the work which don't really display those uh, opinions quite so much. So the story itself at the Mountains of Madness, it's, it's a novella, which means it's about 130 pages long, too long for a short story, but not long enough for a novel. It is, however, about the perfect length to be adapted into a film. It's written as the account of the survivor of an Antarctic expedition that has encountered some horrifying phenomena that left everyone either dead or insane. Similar to things like Bram Stoker's Dracula or the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's framed as a first-hand account by someone who was there to lend credibility. The explorers in the Antarctic find a huge mountain range that's never been found or explored before, and beyond it a strange hidden city full of archaeological remains. 
This includes uh, fossils of life forms that appear to be on the, on the Earth for millions of years, even before the dinosaurs, and proof of a sophisticated civilization far more advanced than our own. Exploring further, they found out these life forms were something called the Elder Things, a mysterious ancient race that may have influenced or even founded human civilization on Earth to use us as their slaves. Their power came from what Lovecraft calls Shoggoths, a kind of protoplasmic life form that can form limbs and other shapes at will and can be mind controlled to build whole cities. But those Shoggoths have developed their own murderous consciousness, which is linked to another older and even more terrifying evil power. These supposed fossilized life forms then come to life and start killing everyone around them. The story belongs in the rest of the Lovecraft universe. For example, the expedition is organized by the Miskatonic University from the fictional town of Arkham. The creatures that represent the threat in the story are referenced in a, a fictional book called the Necronomicon, which was an encyclopedia of weird phenomenon that Lovecraft invented and calls upon in many of his stories. That Necronomicon influenced many other writers, uh, which Lovecraft encouraged, as he thought it would help horror writers build up a, quote, background of evil verisimilitude for all of their stories. It was a big inspiration for H.R. Giger, and in turn Ridley Scott's Alien, of which more later. The story met with a very hostile reception when it came out, um, which is probably because it was the biggest and deepest expression of his strange horror universe, which outside of his pulp magazine you know, readers just wasn't really appreciated in his lifetime. But his and this story's reputation uh, grew over, over the years and is highly influential now, which is probably why that plot summary might sound familiar, because it's been borrowed from any number of times for other films and stories. Um, this story and other Lovecraft stories have influenced a lot of other writers and filmmakers, and I'm of the opinion, which I think Lovecraft fans would find a bit heretical, that sometimes the, the, the stories and films by people who are fans of his, but use it to create their, their own stuff, uh, is more uh, entertaining or more enjoyable than original Lovecraft, like John Carpenter's monster movies are heavily influenced by this, and there's a, a great novel called The Mind Parasites by Colin Wilson, which uh, references the Lovecraft universe and is an absolutely terrifying read. Um... You might think that Antarctic monster story is, is uh, similar to John Carpenter's The Thing, and, and that's not actually based on Lovecraft, although there is debate over whether the original story, Who Goes There, that The Thing is based on, was borrowed from H.P. Lovecraft. So you can see that Lovecraft's uh, sort of own personal sort of creative tentacles are all over the horror universe. So Guillermo del Toro is, is not a surprising candidate to adapt to Lovecraft's story. I think his films have definitely um, dipped into that well uh, for his own ideas. Um, Del Toro is obviously a very well-known filmmaker. He's known for really two kinds of films. There's Spanish language films that are sort of on a more kind of lower budget, less mainstream uh, style. Uh, and his English language films, which tend to be big blockbusters. That distinction has been blurred a little bit recently because he's done less commercial English language films like Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water. Uh, his big films, uh, Hellboy, definitely have links to Lovecraft in, in, in his versions because you can see the characters are searching for and battling uh, all sorts of terrifying ancient creatures uh, of supernatural powers that they know about from old books of arcane knowledge. I mean, that's Lovecraft all over. So Guillermo del Toro, uh, unsurprisingly, is a fan of Lovecraft and a fan of this story at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, and from what I've read, in about 2006, he started working with Matthew Robbins, his longtime screenwriting collaborator, on a script for this story. Um, and it, it looks like the, the trouble that Guillermo Toro had and has had in getting this film made, I mean, it comes down to, to a basic thing. He's looking uh, to get a big budget for a very ambitious film, $150 you know, million dollars most likely. Um, but it's for a dark horror story with a kind of almost cynical storyline that says humans are just 
you know, pawns in a, in, in a huge universe and could get swept away any moment. It's not the sort of thing that you normally uh, get given $150 million to make by Hollywood Studios. You know, they're looking for a sort of a PG-13 blockbuster for that. And, and, and that tension seems to have made it harder and harder to make the film. Which is possibly why an early draft of the script, which kind of made it out into the public domain, um, shows that sort of tension uh, early on. Um, the script itself, uh, you know, is available to download and read, um, but I, I think it's out breaching copyright to do so. So I'm not going to talk too much about the script itself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the fan response to this script because I think it gives you an idea of what Del Tomo was wrestling with. Um, First thing to say is there's apparently three more drafts after this, but this first draft that people have seen was read and discussed a great deal by other people. And the response to it from fans was very mixed, and this is a combination, I think, of Del Toro fans and Lovecraft fans. They kind of thought it was a case of the, 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 the script that they saw was, it was Hellboy, but without the Hellboy central character. Almost a, a lightweight remake of The Thing was what one fan said. And um, people who read it accused it of not being that true to Lovecraft. It was more of a, a superficial read of what Lovecraft is famous for, you know, scaly monsters with tentacles. But the, the script didn't seem to have any of the depth and philosophy that, that his work contains. It also seems to have dropped out the key central section of the original novel or story, where they go deep into the mountains of madness and find a hidden city showing evidence of the so-called old ones that have been here for millennia. And I think what this is a sign of is that there was obviously pressure on Del Toro to pile on the action to, uh, to justify the uh, blockbuster budget that Del Toro needed to realise his vision for the film. And and perhaps that first draft was to attract Hollywood in and say, look, this is going to be a great action blockbuster. And once he got the money, he would sort of add in his ideas and the, the extra kind of nuance and philosophy to the film um, that would enrich it and make it worth making. Um, and yet you've still got this challenge. Is, is he going to get the money to make an R-rated film? And, and, and this tension is a shame, I think, because if, if you look at the script that's there, the attraction of this film should be that instead of yet another low-budget horror, you're getting a top-level filmmaker who really understands this material, bringing out uh, the depth and style of films he made before, like Pan's Labyrinth, and, and really, uh, really evoking the atmosphere and themes of H.P. Lovecraft. If all of you, you're going to get is the same B-movie treatment, but with more expensive special effects, the whole thing seems a bit pointless. And obviously, bear in mind, it's a bit harsh to make final judgments on a first draft that anyone knows has been superseded. Um, it, it just sounds like there, there were so many compromises being made to, to get the film even you know, past the first hurdle that meant that people weren't going to be satisfied with what they saw. Um, one thing that was a great deal of debate was that the, the script uh, apparently shows the, the, or, or features the, the arrival of a creature called Cthulhu. Now, Cthulhu, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, is a, a central figure in Lovecraft. It's this deep, dangerous uh, demon figure that, that shows up in many of his stories. He's not actually in out at the Mountains of Madness, or not really um, uh, making much of an appearance. And it almost, it was perhaps a bit of fan service to put that in. It's not that crucial to the plot. It was meant to... Um, uh, bring people in to say, oh yeah, you're going to see Cthulhu in this film to get the Lovecraft fans on side. And I think perhaps that might, might have done more harm than good because a lot of people would have just felt like this wasn't true to the original story. And if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to play on the loyal fandom there is for the story, but you piss them off with the way you do it, you, the whole thing's going to backfire on you. 
Now, from about 2010, there were signs that this film was actually going to be made. Um, Tom Cruise uh, apparently signed on to work on it when he was absolutely huge box office, which would have certainly got commercial backing. And James Cameron came in as a producer, and with his clout, you could definitely see the film would get, um, you know, get the money and resources that it needed to get made. Um, in the end, though, the, the one studio then another passed on the film, and the project was for the time being cancelled. And really what it came down to is that they just couldn't reconcile the needs of the film on the one hand and the needs of a PG-13 rating for big blockbusters on the other, which means a certain amount of gore and a certain amount of sort of sex and violence and, and dark themes are just not going to be accepted by those pesky suits in the boardroom who I'm always complaining about. Um, the interesting thing is that Del Toro still wants to make it. He's really passionate about this film. He says that he's wearing a ring with the, the logo of the Miskatonic University on it, that fictional uh, institution from the Lovecraft films. And he says that he wears that ring every day and he's going to wear, wear it either until he makes the film or the day he dies. And he says they may bury me in it. Um, and so it, it's quite exciting and intriguing that this is still in Del Toro's plans and with the other films that he's made, he's won Oscars now. His clout is obviously pretty substantial in the industry. Um, it is exciting this film could, could get made. While Lovecraft was a bit of a strange and problematic figure himself, his writing is fascinating and an inspiration for some of the most interesting horror and sci-fi ever made. And because screen treatments of the work in the past have been a bit B-movie, um, having a top-line director, especially this top-line director, um, you know, it really could be amazing. Now, there are, of course, some um, quibbles with that. Maybe it won't be as good as you'd like to think, which is one of the key features of this uh, of this part of the podcast. It's easy to imagine what a great movie this would be. Would it really be that great in reality? And one doubt in my mind is, is Crimson Peak, which was a, a passion project for Del Toro. It was something he'd been wanting to make for a long time. And in the end, I think that film was a bit unsatisfying. It seemed like an exercise in great art direction and gothic atmosphere that didn't really add up to a very good film. Uh, and people who are really big fans of that particular style of filmmaking kind of enjoyed it, but no one came out thinking, oh yeah, Del Toro's really hit the heights here, the way they did with Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone. Um, it's also been scuppered a little bit by a Ridley Scott film, Prometheus, when he was rebooting his Alien universe, ironically, given that Lovecraft was quite influential in some of the creature effects of, of, of the Alien universe. Um, there's a key scene in Prometheus, which you know many will uh, you have, will have seen, where these blue orbs uh, suddenly turn on and show holograms of past events, and the characters suddenly see this terrifying history of the the life forms that they're exploring on this new planet are actually the engineers, or they appear to have had some influence over human history, and that is really borrowed from At the Mountains of Madness. I think Ridley Scott was interested in the At the Mountains of Madness and kind of used some of those ideas for his film. And Ed, Del Toro said at the time that might have killed it off because that, that is a key part of At the Mountains of Madness, that revelation of, of those old ones and what, they're, what they mean for the human race. And it having been in Prometheus perhaps makes it difficult for him to do that scene again. On the other hand, I think a lot of people were pissed off by Prometheus. That's a, that film was a compromise itself between what Ridley Scott wanted to do and you know the studio wanted another alien film. So perhaps there's scope to do it again. The other problem you've got is you know, when you look at some of the other things that have like had a big fandom behind them and have, have allowed a film to get made, it's things like Harry Potter, Marvel, uh, other kind of comic books or, or or popular stories. How many Lovecraft fans are there out there? Are they are they enough to to get a big Hollywood blockbuster made? Um, we just don't know. One of the things that has been suggested that could make this film possible is is Netflix being interested in making these kinds of films now. And when you look at the money they gave. Um, 
Martin Scorsese to make The Irishman, which was about 150 to 200 million dollars, uh, which doesn't seem like all of that money showed up on the screen because all they did was use de-aging technology to make 75-year-old Robert De Niro look like 55-year-old Robert De Niro. However, Netflix were interested enough in getting a big filmmaker and allowing him to make the film that that filmmaker wanted to make and giving him a shitload of money to do it. So maybe Netflix could be um, the opportunity Del Toro needs to make his film. The disappointing side of that was that at the moment, Netflix only really shows their films in the cinema for like a week at a time. And it would be a shame, I think, for something like this, with the sheer scale and vision that Del Toro is working on, if people only ever got to see it on a small screen at home. So this one's pretty open. I mean, it hasn't been made to date. It fell over for reasons that, you know, Hollywood studios, you know, often do where the, you want an R-rated horror movie and you can't do it for that money. You can only have a PG-13 horror movie, which I'm not sure I can be bothered with. But if Del Toro does get it made, if he does manage to find a way to make the film that he wants to make, it could be very interesting. And if you want to imagine what that would be like, there's a few things you can look at, um, and I'd recommend you watch all of these these films anyway, because they're very good. Um, Pan's Labyrinth, which is still Del Toro's masterpiece, although the themes and style of that film are a little bit different, um, it does feature this hidden city or this hidden world, which which is reminiscent of Lovecraft, and especially the creatures inside it, and the and you know the world um, around like a like frail human beings uh, does get evoked there. There's also a John Carpenter film called In the Mouth of Madness, which isn't as celebrated as other films, but I'm kind of fond of it. And it's got a lot of very H.P. Lovecraft influence in it, um, including a, a start of this unnameable horror that drives people mad. That That is featured in that film would be worth a watch. It also features Jürgen Prochnow, who I've mentioned in, uh, in the, the Das Boot feature of this uh, podcast. So it's a small world, isn't it? Also, John Carpenter's The Thing, which isn't based on Lovecraft, but has that terrifying Antarctic-based horror story. In fact, just watch The Thing for any reason. Great movie. Um, you can watch the orb scene in Prometheus to get an idea of what that would look like, and that is actually a pretty good scene in a, in a, a, a really Scott film that not everyone likes. Um, Hellboy certainly gives you an idea of it. And there's also a number of H.P. Lovecraft films out there which you could have a watch of. Um, things like Reanimator, I mentioned The Unnameable From Beyond and The Call of Cthulhu. There's also uh, a Richard Stanley film, Richard Stanley, who I mentioned in a previous podcast. He came out from 20 Years of Exile to do a Lovecraft adaptation called Color Out of Space, which came out earlier this year and is very interesting. It's quite a, um, that's very low budget and independent, but it's not just gory horror. It's Richard Stanley really exploring some interesting Lovecraft themes. So there's stuff out there that you could see, although nothing's ever really been done with that combination of budget and resources and a director who's really willing and able to delve into the themes of Lovecraft. Um, certainly nothing that's an actual Lovecraft adaptation on the Del Toro scale. But it's out there, it will give you an idea. And I think if you're a fan of Lovecraft or you're a fan of that kind of horror, I think this is a tantalising project. I do have mixed feelings, as I mentioned. Um, uh, I think perhaps Del Toro is another person who was influenced by Lovecraft, but doesn't always want to make the Lovecraft story the way the fans want. Maybe they'd be disappointed by that. Um, that Lovecraft influence has already made other classic films, you know, in his uh, track record. So maybe this is redundant. I don't know. Sometimes these passion projects don't come off and there's a reason they don't come off. Having said that, I'd love to be proved wrong. I'd love Del Toro to make this film and make it the classic that everyone hopes it would be. And for the great HP Lovecraft adaptation that, that really justifies the themes of his work to finally be made. And, and to be honest, I would watch any Del Toro film based on a Lovecraft story, however it came out. Um, because I think that would be an interesting thing to experience anyway. So, fingers crossed, this is a one that got away that we might come back to and, 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 and might actually get a chance to see. 
now for the remake hate watch slot in which i remind you why i hate remakes why they're the bane of modern cinema and why they represent the lack of original thought and new ideas in the hollywood boardroom it's also where i admit to being a bit of a hypocrite because of course there were some remakes i absolutely love like the thing invasion of the body snatchers and scarface and also that i'm slightly hypocritical in not really minding franchises and sequels if they're good even though those aren't really original stories either what I'm getting at is this. There are a lot of remakes out there which really have no merit. There was no reason to do another version. The original was perfectly good. It was just a case of the studio forcing, really, or incentivizing people one way or another into just making a film that makes no sense to, to make at all for one last grasp of the money left in the barrel. Each month, I pick a particularly horrendous example of this kind of remake to prove my point. But now this month it's a strange entry into the feature in some ways because a listener to the podcast wrote in with quite an impassioned defence of this film saying there are some scenes that you'd have to have a heart of stone not to enjoy, albeit a little ironically. So I'm, I've tried to approach this with an open mind and, and, and go through my remake inverted commas hate watch instead of just you know immediately condemning this film to see if there is some merit in it. All will become clear as I walk through this month's feature in the remake hate watch the bizarre Nicolas Cage 2006 remake of The Wicker Man. First, let's get into the background to this film. The original Wicker Man came out in 1973 and is rightly seen as a classic of British horror, a pioneer in the folk horror genre where there's pagan ritual and ancient stories underlying the chilling scenario of the film. It was directed by a guy called Robin Hardy, who's only really known for directing this film. He did three or four other films, including a sort of sequel to The Wicker Man, but none of them had the same impact, and really the name Robin Hardy is attached to this film. Uh, it's written by Anthony Schaffer, the great playwright behind things like Sleuth, who was a partner of Robin Hardy in film and TV production, uh, and based on a story called Ritual by David Pinner. It stars Edward Woodward in the lead role, who was just coming off the back of a TV show called Callan, embarking on a film career, although he's best known for the American show The Equalizer in the 80s. It also stars Britt Eklund, Ingrid Pitt, and the great Christopher Lee in his best performance, arguably, and in his best film. Strangely, it wasn't all that well supported when it came out. It was seen as a bit of a B-picture. Producer Michael Dealey, who was also known for interfering with Blade Runner 10 years later, decided it should be a second feature, so he cut 10 to 12 minutes out of the film and had it as a second feature on the bill with Don't Look Now, the big movie starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland that came out that, that year. So the makers of this film felt a little bit like their film had been compromised somewhat with a loss of continuity and atmosphere and some of the erotic imagery of the film. But even so, it still had a great impact and was something of a cult classic. And in the late 70s, they were able to restore the film to its full version, 100 minutes instead of 87, uh, with everything that was originally intended to go in there, and it cemented its reputation as a genuinely classic horror film. The storyline behind it is uh, well known, although I'll try not to spoil the ending. The... Uh, the central character is a devoutly religious police officer who's sent to a small, remote Scottish island off the coast, which doesn't have its own police force, to investigate the disappearance of a young girl on the island. When he gets there, he finds to his horror that the whole place is turned pagan and worships old gods and has maypole rituals and people having sex in the fields, which as a devout Christian he finds completely wicked and wrong. He's concerned about the nature of the island where everyone seems to be keeping a secret and hiding what's happened to the girl and acting very strangely. Uh, he's, he's worried that she might have been killed and there's a horrible atmosphere on, on the island that really uh, concerns him and makes him think that something terrible and evil has happened here. As he desperately goes to 
investigate the the story and fight the temptations and evil that he sees around every corner he finds himself actually caught up in something much more sinister and of course the film is called the wicker man and is known for having an iconic ending which i don't want to give away in case i spoil the plot and you haven't seen it which i thoroughly recommend that you do but it's obviously quite well known for that great atmosphere followed by the big climactic ending the reason I think the original film works is that it was made at the time when the idea of a very innocent, devoutly religious main character like the police officer was still sort of feasible in that time of year. There are people like that in Scotland. And it was also feasible that a remote island miles from anywhere would really be cut off from the world, more so than now in the 21st century. The atmosphere of paganism and the maypole and so on had a nice balance for the atmosphere of the film. On the one hand, it seems quite benign, a kind of 70s hippie version of summer fairs and morris dancing and old traditions that might come from ancient rituals, but are just a bit of fun nowadays. The fact that the main character is the kind of ultra-religious person who finds those things sinister because of the way he was brought up leaves the audience in two minds. On the one hand, it's easy to dismiss his fears at first because it seems like superstition and bigotry, like still believing in witchcraft. But he is genuinely freaked out by this, which is unsettling for the viewer. And the idea of a missing girl in the community covering it up is sinister. They might have killed her. There's a weird cult on the island and strange goings on. So when the tables are turned in the final act, you find yourself caught up in Edward Woodward's nightmare, really having invested in the story. In a sense, it seems as though something like the recent film Midsommar is something of a successor to The Wicker Man. Although it's a new story with its own ideas, it does have a look and feel that seems to hark back to films like The Wicker Man. I can make a fuller judgment on that when I finally get around to watching that film. Sorry, John, the listener who's recommended that film to me. So, such a great film having been made and with such a reputation that it has and it's known throughout the world, who would be crazy enough to make a remake of this film? Well, Nick Cage, that's who. Now, Nick Cage is obviously well known for doing quite odd films. His reputation is for having two settings in his acting, stoic and batshit crazy. And clear he's, uh, in this film, he's clearly in batshit crazy mode. Not quite so much like films like Vampire's Kiss and Deadfall from his early career, but still pretty out there. But if you look at his filmography and what sort of uh, stage of his career he was at, this film was actually a bit of a throwback at the time. He'd moved away from that really kooky persona he played in his early films where he was sort of channeling some sort of wild, odd version of Elvis. I mean, that was every, everywhere in his films in the 80s and 90s, where he did a lot of really weird fringe films with his over-the-top performances. And even in more credible films he did, like Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, and Wild at Heart, he still projected this strange persona. He then reined it in in the 90s with straight performances in big blockbusters like Rock and Con Air. And he became a very successful mainstream leading man and won an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas. So by 2006... It's like the batshit crazy Nick Cage came out again for Wicker Man and forever changed the balance um, back in his career. He still appears in mainstream films with quite straight performances, but now he divides his time much more equally between that and scenery-chewing madness. He was a producer on this film and clearly wanted to do it, and he, he worked with a director called Neil Labute. Now, Neil Labute is known especially for a film called In the Company of Men. He's also done plays on Broadway. He's a slightly controversial director. There are people who say that he's a misogynist and there are others that are saying he's just depicting misogyny. Um, but he divides audiences and critics. Now, the thing is, his concerns seem to be fairly serious films about the struggles between the sexes. There's nothing in his filmography to suggest he fancied directing a horror film or a Nick Cage quirk fest. So they've reset the story into the early 21st century in uh, the Pacific Northwest. It's not an island. It's just a very remote location. 
Um, and it's no longer about an evangelical Christian confronted with wicked sexual paganism in the same way as the original was. The studio was afraid that would offend the American Bible Belt. Now that's a shame because that's what made the original version work and was possibly the only aspect of the story that still had some resonance with 21st century America. Um, what you have instead is this matriarchal commune of women who've gone off to uh, basically create their own community away from the male-dominated mainstream world. And they do have um, clearly have pagan elements, but it's not quite the same. So instead of this battle between Christianity and paganism, which has centuries of history behind it, um, you have a, a rather different emphasis to the story. And of course, the original paints paganism as a scary and dangerous cult when there are modern day pagans who'll tell you how unfair that is. All they do is wear silly hats and bow to the sunset. But there's a bit of dramatic license in the film. What you have now doesn't work very well because it makes it a case of women trying to create a world away from, you know, from men, which in, that could have been interesting and in some ways sympathetic. But then you make them into a murder cult luring men to their doom. And it seems to be sending a bit of a negative message that doesn't help Neil Butte's reputation when it comes to misogyny and attitudes to women. And of course, if Clive Barker were writing this story, the strange culty pagan worshippers who've moved off to a remote location wouldn't be the monsters. The authorities invading their homes and stomping around everywhere would be the monsters. And frightening enough, they would be as well. Overall, the film does follow the same basic uh, structure of the original in which Nick Cage goes to the island. He's traumatised by past experiences and his ex tells him about this place where the girl is missing and he has to go and find her. Um, the first real letdown to the film is that it's a PG-13, so already you're going to be having a, a quite tame version of the film compared to what originally happened. You can't show anything as scary or erotic as the original had. So you're left with a very watered-down version of the story. It tries to build atmosphere. In doing so, it steals wholesale from better films, such as the sight of a girl dressed in red who reminds the main character of the missing child. That's been done so many times. So with this kind of film that's lacking enough oomph behind it, Nick Cage decides to fill the void with one of his full-on performances. He turns it up to 11 with lots of shouting and wild facial expressions. You see him riding around on a girl's bicycle. He dresses up as a bear and then walks up to one of the pagan women and knocks her out with a single punch. So instead of being creeped out by the growing tension, you're on the verge of giggles when you watch this film. And when pagan women jump out of the bushes wearing pig masks, you just give up trying to take it seriously at all and just turn the whole thing into a drinking game. And when the action cranks up to the big climax, they've added in a torture scene featuring bees and everything else. But you're so far past caring that it has no impact. At the end, the film has a dedication to Johnny Ramone, the legendary uh, titular guitarist with the Ramones who had recently passed away. Exactly what he would have made of this kind of tribute, I'm really not sure. So in terms of a verdict on this film and the defense of it by N.Y. Mackham, who's a loyal listener... Um, Yes, it does have a sort of so-bad-it's-good experience, and you can enjoy it a bit more ironically than some of the other remakes. I certainly didn't hate it as much as The Italian Job and Total Recall and some of the other really soulless films that they got on here. It's still an unnecessary film. It's still a terrible come-down from the original. Um, you can sort of enjoy Cage going off the deep, deep end. But I do wonder if, in the end, it's more fun to just watch the highlights on YouTube and skip the bits where it drags out and, and just doesn't work. You know, it's just too 12 rated really to be anything more than weird rather than scary. Having said that, I take on board what M.I. Mackham said. It doesn't deserve the hate watch, but it's certainly not a remake that I can recommend. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. 
Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end, even though I had a bit of a sniffly cold through some of the features. Special thanks again to James Adamson for joining me for the special guest interview. The uninterrupted conversation with James will be made available as a bonus episode, but there's no extended version. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed the podcast using Audacity and Anchor FM. As usual, anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Stir of Echoes is available to purchase on HD for about £6 for digital or disc versions. Richard Matheson's excellent source novel is also available to buy. If you absolutely must watch the Wicker Man remake, it's available to rent from the usual sites. There's lots online about Del Toro's As Yet Unrealized at the Mountains of Madness project. For a more detailed podcast, go to episode 77 of HP Podcraft, a series that covers things all things Lovecraft, including that project. His books are widely available, and you can currently pick up Lovecraft's complete works for a very low price on Kindle. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Hopefully you'll tune in next time for the new and improved format. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.